All right. Well, that's been a blessed service already. These are some great hymns. You know, even though there was only a handful of us here, those were powerful and very inspiring this morning. One thing that struck me this morning right off is this hymn we just sang, How Great Thou Art. And Carl uh, Boberg was a Swedish Christian. And if you look at the dates, his lifespan... 1859 to 1940. Think about what all he witnessed in this world in that span of life. Uh, he was born right before the great American Civil War with its untold millions of, of casualties and bloodshed and division. And he was alive during World War One, which took a tremendous toll on his homeland of Sweden and that whole area of Europe. He was alive during, well, right up to the lead up to World War One. So for him to be able to have that kind of um, commitment to Christ and be able to say how great thou art through all that adversity, I think that's something that we should look to today and think, you know, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what trials we face, if it's a congregation that used to be filled with its pews and now it's down to a handful, if it's trials at work, if it's trials, and no matter, you know, what capacity of life, we can still turn to God and say how great you are and how great the wonderful, wonderful work of Christ is. So that was been a, a blessing already this morning. So I had on my mind to start today in 2 Timothy, and I hope if you guys have your Bibles, we can just follow along through some Scripture together. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, so just like John 3.16, only 2 Timothy 3.16, is a very familiar Scripture to us, and that is that all Scripture, so everything that we read in the Bible, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It isn't something that was conjured up in order to... You know, trick people into you know living a certain way. It isn't something that was conjured up by men in order to get political power or clout or gain. It was given by the inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine or teaching. So even though there's four adults and a child in here right at this moment, we know that the Scripture is still given for us at this moment in this time, God being sovereign in all things, that uh, the Scripture is given for us to us for doctrine, for reproof, so that we can find out where there's blame in our lives, so that we can see where God would be not approving of anything that we do. So the Scripture is given so that it can shed light on that, on, on reproof that we need, for correction, so that we can take the Scripture and we can look through and we can see exactly how we should live systematically in all areas of life, and also for instruction in righteousness. So not only do we do the right things, but we have a heart that wants to follow God. So I want to look at those uh, examples today, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction for righteousness, and pray that God would allow us to have a, a blessed time looking at that today. You know, I, I mentioned that I saw Brother John Rogers last week at our church, Chattanooga, and he mentioned that you know they had left the church and the church was down to just a handful of people, and he asked me to pray about the church, so I've been doing that all, all this week. And... Um, uh, so I was a little, a little nervous about being here this morning, knowing that not not knowing what to expect or who was going to be here, and just praying that God would allow me to come down and just give a cool drink of water to whoever showed up, even if it was one or if it was fifty. I had no idea what to expect. So let's pray that God would do that for us today to give each of us that cold drink of water that we need in our life as we um, take in His Word, take in the Scripture, which is good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and righteousness. And apply that to our hearts as we leave here today. So before we start, let's pray and ask God to do just that for us this morning. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this church. And we thank you that you've met with us already this morning. Lord, we have sung of your amazing mercies. We've sung how great you are. We've sung that our lives as Christian men and women are filled with joys unspeakable. 
And God, we pray that you would help that joy to be manifested in our lives even more firmly today. That you would help us leave here with hearts that were joyful. That you would help us to go out into the world and fulfill what Christ has told us to do, to go out and make disciples and to teach and to show love to those that we come in contact with. We pray, Lord, that you would use us in a mighty way as we leave here today. Help us to be equipped in this next hour or so that we're together reading your word. Help fill us up. Help us to have that joy unspeakable so that it spills out. And the first person we meet when we leave here just looks at us and says, Wow, I want that joy. I need that joy. Help us to be ready to give an answer for that hope. And we just pray that you would bless us this morning. Bless those who were not able to be here today but maybe tried. Help those who were at other churches. We just pray that that Christ would be preached powerfully today in all pulpits across this country and across this world. And Lord, and we just thank you for your many manifold blessings. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we talked about that span of time between 18, what was it, 1859 to 1940 and all the things that were going on in that. You know, and if you think about the, the course of human history, nothing has really changed. The, the human heart, the human condition hasn't changed since 1850 or 1940 or 70 years before Christ or 1400 years before Christ. We still live in a sin-cursed world and we still, as people, have sin in our hearts that cause us all kinds of calamities in this world that cause um, you know, men to do evil things, women to, do, to commit sin, parents to not take care of their children. Uh, we, we, and, and again, this is nothing new. What we're living in today is nothing new. So if we look all through and just take a quick five-minute survey of the Scripture, you know, we start in Genesis chapter 3 and we see that sin entered into the, to the garden. We see that Adam and Eve were beguiled by the serpent. They wanted what they wanted, and they didn't want to live for God. And that's a common theme that we see all through the Scriptures. When man tries to do things according to what he thinks is good and what he thinks is right, calamity always follows. And that's nothing, that we don't, that's nothing new. We see that today as we saw it way back in the Garden of Eden. So as we look through Scripture, we, you know, we get to um, you know, we had Adam and Eve there in the sin. We see Cain and Abel, the two brothers that were the offspring of Adam and Eve, the first two offspring. We see the first murder there of Abel. Uh, we, have, we go through the flood, and we see that the whole world is wicked. And God, knowing exactly what should be done, and being just and being righteous, um, brought judgment upon the world through the flood. And then after that, we have this remnant, this seed. Then we have Abraham, and then we have Sarah. Um, and look what happens with Sarah. Sarah takes things in her own hands when she feels like she can't conceive and give Abraham the son that she feels like he deserves, that, he, that he's owed, or she does, that she should be giving him. So she takes matters in her own hands, and look what happens. That creates a whole other line of people that will continually be in, in enmity with God's chosen people. It would be a great nation. The, the, the children of Ishmael were a great nation, but they also were a nation that were at odds. So there's that conflict even way back then. That conflict starts, and we still see it today. But really, all that started from Sarah thinking, I think I know better than God's plan. I can do things better on my own than what God can do. As we continue that, we see you know, Isaac is born. Um, we see Isaac uh, has Jacob and Esau. and God chose Jacob even before they were born because of his own good pleasure and his own works according to election and his own purposes. Down the road, we see on into uh, Joseph. And we see Joseph had lived a life where he was favored over the other brothers. They were jealous. 
And so they took matters into their own hands, and they thought, you know, instead of doing what I think is right, what God would have me do, I want to stir things up, and I want to expedite things, and I want to make things the way I want them to be, and I don't want to follow God's law. And so they tried to murder Joseph, but we know that God worked that through his own glory, just like he does all throughout history. And we see that, we see, you know, the nation that was born out of those that people, out of all those 12 tribes there under Jacob, we see that they continually turn against God. They turn away from God. At one point, they ask God, we don't want to be ruled by you or by the judges. We want to be ruled by kings like every other nation on this earth. They wanted to be like the earth. They wanted to be like, if we're sitting here today, but it was more appealing to us to be like those folks that are putting their boats in in the Coosa River down the street. They wanted to be like those people. Those people have it going right. They know what they're doing. They know what they want. They seem happy. And we want to be like that. And God said, okay, I'm going to do that. But that's judgment. That's you deciding to do things your way and not my way. So we have that. And again, it just continues all through history. It's the same recurring theme, trying to do things our way and not doing it God's way. And then we get into um, the kings, and we get into Saul, we get into Saul's jealousy, and we get into how Saul's jealous over David, and, and then David becomes king, and we see that David wants to take things into his own hands as well. Instead of being out in the field of battle with his men where he should have been, he wanted to, he tarried back at home, got into trouble because he was lingering there, and he wasn't working and doing the things that God had, had him would have him to do. He got into trouble with sins with another man's wife, and and then we... Just continue from there. Solomon. Solomon was a great and wise man, but he also listened to his many wives that God told him not to listen to and not to take. They led him away from God. They led him away from God because they wanted him to do what they wanted to do because they thought they knew better than God. So all through this, we have this people that God has called, just like he's called us today, who have decided that even though they have heard directly from God, they've been called by God, they've been a remnant for God, they thought that they could do things better than God. And so where I'd like for us to land on that for just a few minutes is the book of Jeremiah. If you just return with me to Jeremiah chapter 1, you know that Jeremiah was a prophet who was called of God at a very young age. And what we had just talked about, this whole, you know, we had Solomon on the throne. When Solomon died, you know that the nation of Israel, or the, the nation of God, the children of Israel, were split into a northern and a southern kingdom. And in the southern kingdom of Judah is where Jeremiah is going to be called to serve. What we have leading up to this is just a very wicked and perverse people. Again, doing things their own way. We had Manasseh, who was an evil king. We had his son, Ammon, who was an evil king. Josiah was the king whenever Jeremiah was called of the Lord, and he tried to institute reform in the church. He tore down the altars and the groves that were being used to sacrifice to God other than the one true and living God. And so he was trying to make these reforms, but the sins of the people were so great, the hearts were so turned against God. You know, they say that sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go and keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. Well, that's what we see when Jeremiah is called by God onto the scene. This is about, if I remember right, about 700 years before the birth of Christ. So this is leading up into the captivity um, somewhere between seven and four and seven hundred years. So again, from the book of Genesis through Jeremiah, all the way up through when Karl Bockhard was writing hymns in Sweden, the human condition is still the same. We're still fighting God. We're still fighting to do what we want to do. And that's true again even today. But in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, 
to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem, captive in the fifth month. We see the span here that Jeremiah is going to be witnessing and prophesying to these people. It goes right up until the time they are led captive by the Babylonians and taken over in King Zedekiah's reign. And we see that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. You know, that's comforting us. We just found out that we're going to have another child. It'll be number seven for us. So we're a joy. You know, we're going through a series of joy and also worry. You know, the pregnancies have always been difficult for Tara, our wife, and she's getting, you know, older. And so we do covet your prayers there. But, you know, as we think about this new life that's being formed, even today, even as, you know, six weeks old in her womb, that God is in control even of that life today at this very moment, that before he formed Jeremiah in the belly of his mother, he knew Jeremiah intimately. He knew exactly what his plan for Jeremiah would be. He knew that if Jeremiah lived his life according to his word and his calling, that he would do great things in Jeremiah's day. Even though it didn't seem like it to Jeremiah, which we'll talk about in a little bit, Jeremiah was also called the weeping prophet. He seemed like he was always in turmoil and in sadness because of what he was seeing going on all around him and because God's judgment was being dealt out appropriately to the people of Israel. But God knew exactly what he had planned for him. He says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. And his response was, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. And so I think that's good for us today, just to look to say, you know, God had a plan for each and every one of us. God had a plan for all of us sitting here today. From the foundations of the world, God planned for Christ to die on the cross to cover our sins, that he would call us and draw us into him and provide that justification for our sins through the propitiation of Christ and we don't need to be like Jeremiah in chapter 6, or excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 1, and say, God, I cannot speak, because we can speak, and we should speak. But the Lord said unto me, Jeremiah, Say not that I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. And be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And when the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth, well, today we know from reading in Hebrews that we don't hear God's word spoken to us through prophets like Jeremiah today. We hear our word as the manifestation of Christ and Christ's work on the cross and through the pages of Scripture. So what we need to do is to put the words of God in our mouths through reading and just taking in His word daily and memorizing and meditating on Scripture daily. So as we look at Jeremiah, though, we see that he is constantly in these ups and downs. Just like Elijah was when we read about in 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal, he showed the manifestation of God's power clearly. But then in the next chapter, where do we see him? He's in a cave and he's hiding and he's scared and he thinks that Jezebel is going to kill him. So there's ups and downs in the Christian walk and we have to realize that and we have to turn to God in every instance in that case and pray for strength and for wisdom to know how to get out of the doldrums and the slumps that we find ourselves in. So, Jeremiah, is that's where he finds himself. And so, if we look at, if we flip over, Jeremiah chapter 15, 
we'll flip around a little bit here in Jeremiah for a second. Jeremiah 15, chapter 10. So after he's gone through to prophesy to the people, he's overwhelmed by just the sins and just the, the, I can't handle this, Lord. This is too much for me to do. And he says in chapter 15, verse 10, Woe is me, my mother that has borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. So just think about what just happened here. God told him earlier, and we just read that, that God said, Before you were born, while you were in your mother's womb, I knitted you, I knew you intimately, I have a purpose for you. But here, just a short time later, Jeremiah uses that same imagery and says, Woe is me, my mother that has borne me. So we need to be careful to take God at his word and hold on to God's promises and not let ourselves panic and not let ourselves get overwhelmed by the frustrations of life. If we're trying to hard to you know, build a church back up and it becomes overwhelming, we can't put our faith in ourselves. We have to put our faith in God. Jeremiah, who was an anointed prophet of God, couldn't do it. God told him directly, I, in your mother's womb, I have a purpose for you and I knew you. And here he says, well, in my mother's womb, I should have never been born. So we have to be cautious about that. So let us pray that God would allow us to hear his word, to take in his word, believe his word, and hold fast to his word even as Jeremiah didn't do that in this example that we read. So what were the so so I, I talked about how things today and things 100 years ago and things in Jeremiah's day were exactly the same if you look at the hearts of the people. You know, technology's changed, lots of things have changed. You know, we have these nice cars sitting right outside today. Those weren't there back then. But men put their faith in other things like that. They put their faith in strong horses or char- chariots or camels. They cared very much about the things they acquired. They wanted to have nice dwellings. They wanted to send their kids to be educated at the, nice, at the nicest parochial schools or to be trained by you know, the, the, the top-of-the-line rabbis of the time. They had the same pursuits and the same goals, and they also had the same spiritual dryness that we tend to have here and we need to be on guard about. If you look in Jeremiah, flip over to chapter 7, and let's look and see what the condition of the people in Jeremiah's day were like. What do they put their faith in? Chapter 7 of Jeremiah says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there his word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. God tells them, If you change your ways, Change your doings, and I'll dwell with you in this place. And he says in verse 4 of chapter 7, Trust not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. The people in Jeremiah's day were putting their faith in the temple. They weren't putting their faith and their trust in God's living word. They weren't putting their faith in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were putting their faith in a building. They were putting their faith in outward things. And this is what is so common today. So often we put our faith in things that are not godly, that that is not the Word of God. And we need to be on guard about that. They also, if you look over in verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 8, they also put their faith in the law. Chapter 8, verse 7 says, Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming, but my people know not the judgment of the Lord. How do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. The wise men are ashamed 
and they are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what wisdom is in them? They're saying you're putting your faith in the written law, the word, but you're not changing your heart. Your heart's not being conformed to God's word. That's a real danger for us today. You know, we put our faith in carrying our Bible or reading our Bible or coming to church. But Jeremiah gives the people a strong warning here and says, that's in vain. If you're putting your faith in the law, that's in vain. He says, the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what wisdom is in them? They haven't applied the word of the Lord to their heart. It hasn't caused that inward change. So all of those things lead up to what really is a very, very serious condition. And if we flip over to verse 17, or excuse me, chapter 17, let's look and see sort of where all this has led the nation of Judah in Jeremiah's day. So we have Jeremiah. He's being called with a purpose by God. God says, before I've formed you in your mother's womb, I've called you and I've given you a purpose. I've got a plan for your life. And Jeremiah sees the, the trouble. He sees how people disregard God and he sees how people live for themselves and he's dismayed and he says, I know you just told me that, Lord, but I feel like I should never even been born out of my mother's womb. And he says, the people, the nation of Judah, are putting their faith in the temple. They're putting their faith in outward things. They're putting their faith in the law. And they're not changed. They don't have changed hearts. They don't have hearts of love and service and gratitude to God. All they care about is the outward show of their religion. And look where that's led to them. Look in chapter 17, Jeremiah 17, chapter 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. That means it's indelible. It's not going to be removed. It's been written with a pen of iron. So the sin of Judah, God has written it with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. That means it's sharp and it's cutting just like God's word is sharp and cuts asunder, and upon the horns of your altar. So their sins are even written upon the horns of the altar of God. You know, in the temple, we read that the horns of the altar were a place where you could go and you could grab hold of the horns of the altar and you could find forgiveness and repentance. You could find justice. If you've been wrongly accused of a crime, you could go there and you could grab hold of the horns of the altar. We see that whenever um, Solomon is about to... um, ascend the throne and his brother tries to take over and his brother then goes to those horns of the altar and and, and begs for forgiveness and God grants him forgiveness. Although later we see that his brother tried again to usurp his kingdom and was was killed justly. Joab also, who was his first in command, um, went to those horns, but he did it, like we just read about, in an outward show and not inwardly, not having an inward conversion and he was killed as he did that. So there's power, there's power in having a heart for God versus just an outward show of religion, as we see time and time again. But here in verse chapter 17, the sins of Judah have been great, and God has written them with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. And they have been graven on the table of their hearts and upon the horns of the altar. This is very, very serious. In verse 2, we read that whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. So their children are remembering the places where they go to sacrifice to false gods and to idols. Their children aren't remembering God. Their children are being taught not to follow God, but to follow themselves or to follow what their parents want to do or to look to their own abilities. Whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. O my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and all thy treasures to the spoil and thy high places for sin throughout all thy borders. In verse 4 we read, And thou... Even thyself shall discontinue from thine heritage that I gave thee, and I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. 
For ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. That's very serious. But that's where Jeremiah finds himself. And that's, I think, today, that we can make a case that that looks very similar to what we see in America today. And what we see in Europe today. And what we see all over this world. That we have children not being taught fear God. We have people sacrificing the lives that they should be living for God for convenience or for treasure or for things that they want. And we have God telling them that this is very serious and that your sins are being written with a pen of iron. And look at verse 5. This is what God says to the people in Jeremiah's day. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man. So just like we've talked about all throughout the ages, the desire, because of our sinful nature, because of the fall, there's a danger where we, we put our trust in ourselves, where we focus more on what we want and what we want to obtain and what we want to do and less on what God would have us do and building up our relationship with God and following the commandments of Christ. There's a real danger in that for us this morning. But God makes it very clear that that man is cursed that does that and maketh flesh his arm. So cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. That man that puts his security in his own muscle, in his own strength, in his own mind. That man is cursed, we read, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert and shall not see when good cometh. Think about that heath in the desert that's just sort of blowing out there lonely. It's, it's, there's a loneliness to not walking in fellowship with God and with other Christian believers. There's a loneliness there that you can't feel on your own. People try with everything you can think of, with drugs, with alcohol, with excess anything, with excess food, with excess entertainment. People try to fill that, and really what's caused that is a loneliness like the heath in the desert that's blowing around there with no direction all alone. But that's what happens when you're cursed whenever you put yourself above God. He says he will not see when good cometh, in in verse 6. He'll be spiritually blind. He won't be able to see the good blessings of God. One of the hymns that we sing often at our church, and I'm sure you all do too, is to count your blessings. But if you're living for yourself, you don't see those blessings. You can't see what God has done in your life, which further leads to alienation and loneliness. So they won't see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in a salt land not inhabited. He'll be dry. It'll be a land of dryness. But look at the opposite. Look at verse 7. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and not himself, and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be a tree planted by the waters. And that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when the heat cometh. But her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought. Neither shall cease from yielding fruit. It's hot out today. We got here, and we were sitting in the car waiting uh, for you know someone to come, and the first person to unlock the door, and they had the windows down, and it was hot already. And I imagine it's been a hot summer. It has been up north in Tennessee. Um, but that's what it's like when you're not living your life for God. That hot, direct sun, that just exposure... Look at verse 9. This is what I think is really key for us this morning. The heart is deceitful. Why, do, why should we not put our trust in our own self today? Because our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts will deceive us every single time. The Bible is clear. Jeremiah makes it clear that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's not just wrong sometimes. and It doesn't just lead us you know, down the wrong path maybe or every now and then. It's in all times, the heart is deceitful. Your heart, being a product of a sin-soaked world will lead you astray every single time if it's not closely knitted together with Christ. Every time. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, we can't even know how deceitful and wicked our heart is. God knows. God sees that. But that is so dangerous to be playing around with a heart 
It's leading us around. It's very dangerous. We shouldn't follow our own hearts. That's very common in our culture today to tell children, follow your heart. Follow your own desires. The Bible is clear where that leads. That leads to loneliness. That leads to dryness. That leads to being spiritually empty. We cannot follow our own hearts. We have to follow Christ and Christ's commands. Verse 10, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. That's who knows our deceitful heart, the Lord. And I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And as the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, talk about something, word coming to nothing. Talk about all that's work in vain, just like Solomon tells us that I built palaces and I had wives and I had all these things and by all outward appearances I looked like I had my act together. But really, I was like that partridge in verse 11 that was sitting on eggs that never hatched. Good never came. So just like the partridge that sitteth on eggs that hatcheth not, that hatcheth not, so he that getteth riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days and his end shall be a fool. And at his end shall be a fool. There's no godly inheritance there when we follow ourselves. We just read about in verse 2 of this chapter, that while their children remembered their altars and their groves, their children were remembering the things that their parents did, not what God had instructed them to do. Their parents were not teaching them that. So just like this partridge who sit on the eggs, but nothing comes of it. There's no lasting heritage. There's no legacy. There are no children who are going to pick up the mantle and, and follow Christ. There's no joy in having grandkids sit at your feet because it's just gone. It's like a vapor. All that you work for, if it's not... Working for Christ is vanity, just like these, this partridge whose eggs never hatch. And we see in verse 12, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Let's take two more verses out of this chapter. This is so good. I want to get to verse 14 especially. So, O Lord, this is 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Just like we prayed that we, that, we, that we would leave here today and be that cold drink of water to somebody that needs it. We read that the Lord, the Lord is the fountain of living waters. And this is Jeremiah's prayer to God in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this self-worship, in the midst of this idol worship, in the midst of not doing what God would have you do, but again, just getting up in the morning and saying, I want to do what I want to do today. I want to follow my heart. In the midst of all this calamity that's a result of this, of putting faith in the law, putting faith in the temple, not following Christ, not following God, this is Jeremiah's prayer in the midst of all of that calamity. In verse 14, he says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. So today we need to pray that God would heal us. We live in a world that is so diseased and so sick at every turn. I'm surprised if any of us would watch anything on TV and be shocked at this point. The debauchery, the sin, it's just rampant. It's everywhere. But you know what? It was always everywhere. It's the same thing that Jeremiah encountered. Yeah, it's packaged a little differently. You know, the media that is presented to us, how it's delivered into our homes is different. But it's the exact same thing. It's a desire to serve yourself and not serve God. It's a desire to want to be God and not follow God. Jeremiah says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. And save me, and I shall be saved. That's real salvation. It's only offered through God. It's not offered through trying to follow yourself and find happiness and contentment. It's only found through, through God. All right, so that, that takes us up through almost the point of the nation of Israel being led away to the Babylonian captivity. And what we see after that is 
again, God used Jeremiah in a mighty way. You know, Jeremiah was there through the, the upbringing of Daniel and the other um, children who would go into the Nebuchadnezzar's court and become mighty men of God, um, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. So God used Jeremiah to teach these young men. So even though it seemed to him like all of his work and all of his labor and all of his lamentations and all of his fears and worries were for nothing to the point where he almost just wanted to never have been born, but he didn't see that God was working systematically through him in order to inspire, in order to teach. Just like the scriptures we read about this morning are there for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness. God used Jeremiah in that. And then so the, Bible, the captivity took place. There were years and years where the nation of Israel sort of stewed in its own captivity. They were never free again. As we open up in the book of Matthew, we see that they were in bondage to the Romans. But the reason for that bondage was because they tried to live for themselves. You know, it's interesting. Yesterday I went to Starbucks, and this was the sleeve on the Starbucks. I don't know if you guys have Starbucks in Gadsden. Do you, by the way? No? No. So... I probably drink too much coffee. Just kidding. You can't never really drink too much coffee. But this was the sleeve on my Starbucks card, and this is a quote from Oprah Winfrey. And it says, Be more splendid. Be extraordinary. Use every moment to fill yourself up. This is so pervasive in our culture. At every turn, fill yourself up. Take care of yourself. Do what you want. I just read this article by Dr. Al Mohler, who isn't, who's a Baptist. He's not one of, one of us. He's not in our order of Baptists. There's some splits in the Baptist um, faith in the 19th century. And even though the Southern Baptists at one point were very much in agreement doctrinally with us on many things, sort of took this turn, but he's pretty solid, and he is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I read this article that he wrote the other day about something that troubled him very much, and that was this trend among preachers, not necessarily in the Baptist church or the Old Baptists or the Presbyterians or you know any real denominations trying hard to lead their people to God, but among other denominations, some of these other evangelical, evangelical free churches, some of these large churches like the Olsteins, you've heard of Joel Olstein. And he mentioned that there was this service, and I actually went to YouTube and saw this clip, and it was very disturbing, where the wife of Joel Olstein made this statement that said, again, they're on stage, they're in this mega church with thousands and thousands of people there. It looks like a, you know, a football stadium. And these people are sitting there listening, being being taught doctrine, although it's not really biblical doctrine in my opinion, but they're being taught and led, and this is what they're being told. This was a quote from Joel Osteen's wife. When we obey God, we're not really doing it for Him. We're doing it for ourselves. She says, do good for yourselves. She says, when you come to church, it's not about God. It's about doing good for yourself. It's almost laughable if it's not so discouraging because of the amount of people that were there saying amen and agreeing to that. So the problem is it goes much further than Oprah Winfrey and her network and her, you know, the magazine that goes into millions of people's homes where it says, live for yourself, follow your own heart. We even see it in so-called Christian churches today. I drove by a church on the way home from work the other day, and there was a sign on the church, outside on the church by the street that said, church is where you find yourself. Now, I don't know. Maybe there was good motives in that. Maybe they were saying, you know, yourself really is only, you know, finding yourself means you find your purpose in serving God. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But it's not about us. And so nothing that we do is about us. Now think about Luke chapter 9, where we read that if any man will come after me, Christ says, let him deny himself. Let him pick up his cross daily. And he mentions daily specifically for a reason. And that isn't something that you make a, a commitment to do once. When you're a young man and then you live your life for yourself, 
And then at the end of your days, you come back and say, God, I try to live a good life for you. Christ says you pick up your cross daily and deny yourself daily. And that's hard for us to do. It was hard for the nation of Israel to do that. It was so hard that it caused them to become divided. It caused them to be led to captivity. It caused God to write in Jeremiah chapter 17 that their sins were written with a pen of iron. So we have to pick up our cross daily to serve God. It's very important. All right, so we talked about Jeremiah kind of flipping through. Ezekiel, another prophet that was preaching the same message of repentance. We go through Jonah, Habakkuk. All of these minor prophets are all preaching, don't do things on your own. Don't follow your life the way you want to live it. Follow God's law. Have God's law hidden in your heart so that you can be like that tree firmly planted by the waters. We see all that, and that leads us up to Matthew. And let's turn real briefly to the last chapter of Matthew. I don't want to park there just for its remaining ten minutes. Well, we see the same condition in Matthew as we saw all through Genesis, all the way up through this really quick survey that we've done of the Old Testament. And we see that the Pharisees, the religious order of the time, they want to do things based on their tradition. They want to do things based on their own history, their own way. They don't want to follow Christ. They don't want to have their hearts really changed and challenged. They don't want to look inwardly at themselves and say, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? They want to stick to the traditions that have led them where they are, which sadly is in bondage to themselves and bondage to their sins. But Christ, at the very end of Matthew, tells a very small number of people, just like in here we have a very small number of people today, but we have five adults and three children, so that's what eight of us. So Christ is talking to his 11 disciples. So if you look in verse 28, excuse me, chapter 28, verse 16, And then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mount where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That is comforting. That should be comforting to us today. All power. And it's important to note that Jesus doesn't say, All power has been obtained by me. I have gotten all the power. You know, I have the power. There's an order there. There's an order inside the Trinity there. And Jesus had all power. He was there from the very beginning of the foundations of the world. But when Christ came down as God in human flesh, as the mediator between us and a holy and righteous God, he surrendered that power. And then through the proper course of action, God restored all the power to him. Christ says, all the power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And that is living a life for God and not living a life for yourself, even though no one would be more entitled than Christ right here. And he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, just like we read about with Paul writing to Timothy right before his death, that all the scripture is good for teaching. He says, Go and teach all the nations. That's all the people that we encounter. That's people that don't look like us and people that don't sound like us are people right out here on Broad Street that don't live like us. He says, you need to go teach all nations. You need to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And I think that's a good verse right there to make a very good argument that we baptize in a way where it's, we baptize in a way after we've made disciples, after they've made a commitment to follow Christ, they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost at that point. Because, again, we're looking at a very logical, systematic flow. No one is more logical and systematic than Christ, who systematically made the world and pieced it together from its design, creation's implementation, and, its, and it being, having it sustained today. And he tells us to go to all nations and teach them. When those people are converted, baptize them with a credo baptism. Once they've made a creed and they've agreed that they're going to follow Christ, 
and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So here we are today, this little small congregation. We've had a great service today. God has met with us. We have sung wonderful hymns to His glory. We've looked through what happens whenever we live our lives for ourselves. And here we read that God has given us a commandment to go and teach, to teach people to observe, not how to follow their own heart or get what they want, but how to follow Christ and to teach them what God has commanded, what He has commanded. And there's basically six categories of what Christ commands. And this, most of these can be found in the, book of, in the Gospel of Matthew. But six things that Christ has commanded. One, he's commanded us to repent and to believe. And I think all of us can say that we've repented. Hopefully, we're daily picking up our cross and repenting of wrongs that we do and and really asking the Holy Spirit to show us our sin. None of us are perfect. All of us sin. We read in 1 John that if any man says he has no sin, he's a liar. But Christ is telling us and commanding us to go teach people to repent and to repent ourselves and to believe. Number two, to be baptized. Number three, he's telling us to love in his commandments to love one another as we love ourselves. Christ also commands that we pray, that we pray daily, that we pray fervently and at all times. Christ commands that we have communion with Him and with other saints, and He commands that we make disciples. It doesn't mean that He wants us to go knock on doors and say, hey, if you die today, are you going to go to heaven? That's not what He's saying. He's saying that we need to be salt and light in the world. We need for people to see that joy unspeakable and full of glory that we sang about this morning. People need to see us. They need to have relationships with us. We need to go build relationships with people. We need to not be alone. We need to go out and find people, help them, love them, befriend them, serve them. And then when they ask, hey, when things are bad, you seem to have it all together. How is that? Well, let me show you. Let me make a disciple out of you and follow Christ's commandments. Real quick, let's look through Matthew and look at some of these commandments that Christ has given us. We won't spend a lot of time on each of these, but I think it would be good if you want to just you know, put a check mark by them or mark them somehow, then you can go back through and read these later. Again, we just read that what Christ said was for us to go out to all the nations, to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, to teach people that we come in contact with to observe all the things whatsoever I've commanded you. So let's look and see what Christ has commanded us today. And we'll start over in verse... Let's start in verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. Chapter 4, sorry. Matthew chapter 4, 17. Christ has called us to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, chapter 4, 17. From the time that Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse 19, he said, Follow me. So, that's another commandment. Christ said, Repent. He said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We'll, we'll go through these pretty quickly. In chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Rejoice. So, we just heard, Repent, follow me, and rejoice. Sometimes we don't feel like rejoicing. We don't feel like being full of joy We don't feel like it, but we do it. God has commanded us to rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is the reward in heaven. For so persecuted they that the prophets, they the prophets which were before you. He said, if you're going through trials, rejoice. Chapter 5, verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Again, this is Christ telling us very point blank, commanding us to let our light shine. Verse 24, he says, Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way, and be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. So if you've got a problem with someone, go to that brother. And don't wait. Don't even go and sacrifice to God. Don't go pray before you go to... Well, do go pray. But before you can do anything else, you need to go to that brother, and you need to be reconciled. It's a commandment of Christ. Verse 29 of chapter 5, 
And if the right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. Again, this is a commandment that Christ is saying. You need to go teach these commandments. You need to do them yourself and teach these. And he's saying, if there's something that causes sin in your life, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Don't follow yourself. Don't follow your own wicked heart. Your heart will deceive you every time. Whatever it is that you're following that's not me, that's not biblical, that's not contained in my word, get rid of it. Verse 37, he says, Let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. He says, Speak what's on your mind and do it truthfully. Do it in a way that there's no double talk. Just say it. And ye have heard that it had been said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This is verse 38 and 39. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. Turn, turn to him the other also. Go the extra mile. If a brother offends thee, give him the benefit of the doubt. Go to that brother. Don't just say, oh, you know, he's done me wrong and I'm going to get him back. The world is so full of revenge. There are so many TV shows and movies and genres about revenge. But Christ commands us to do something else. In verse 40, he says, If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, give him thy cloak also. And whatsoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Again, go that extra mile. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Be generous to those who need help. Look to others. Look to their needs. Find ways you can serve people. He says, But I say unto you, in verse 44, Love your enemies, and bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Man, that's a big one. How many times do we have people at work that despitefully use us and curse us or persecute us or just generally do things that are disagreeable to us? But Christ tells us point blank, you need to pray for that person and you need to teach others to do that as well. Verse 48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's a very high standard. If we're following our own ambitions and our own self and our own heart, that'll never happen. But if we're following Christ and we are made perfect by the propitiation of His, you know, His work on the cross, and He's the propitiation of our sins, then that could take place if we're following Him. Okay, moving on. Chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when I do doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Saying, do good. Over Winfrey tells us to be more splendid, to fill ourselves up. But Christ says, no, do good, follow God, and don't do it so that men will toot your horn or acknowledge you. Do it so that God will be pleased with you. In verse 19, he says, lay up not treasures for yourself. He says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, is where your heart will be. Verse 33 of chapter 6, he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God, not your own heart, not your own ambitions, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Judge not, that you will not be judged. Don't pass sentence on someone. Don't cast someone off. Don't tell them that there's no hope for them. Don't say, I don't want any part of them because there's no hope. Instead, don't judge them. Pray for them. Serve them. In verse 6, we read, Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither... Cast ye your pearls before swine, at least they trample under feet, and turn again and render. That's a difficult one. That's almost like Christ telling us to, to stop communicating with those, stop sharing the gospel, stop sowing the seeds around those. But, you know, he calls us to be wise. There is a time when we need to be praying and asking God to let us know when to shake the dust off our sandals and move on to the next person. Christ tells us that specifically, to be cautious and be wise. Verse 7, he says, Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. And in verse 8, he says, For everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And him that knocketh, it shall be opened. 
In verse 12 we read, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do to them. It's a golden rule. Treat others like you want to be treated. All right, a couple more in, verse, in chapter 7. There are more of Christ's direct commandments. It's easy just to go through and just highlight them. But, but God, Christ has commanded us very specifically. It's like the Proverbs taken right out of the Gospel, Christ's own words for us. Verse 13, he says, Enter ye the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Beware of people that stand up in a church pulpit and tell you that when you serve God, it's really not for Him. When you come to church, it's not for Him. It's for you. It's so that you feel better. We need to beware of those things. And it's not just in churches. It's pervasive all throughout our culture. So I hope that's been a blessing to us today. We need to just remember that sometimes things seem bleak. Sometimes we see that sin just seems to be overwhelming. Sometimes it seems like God's unseen hand has been lifted and there's just no end to sin in our world. But remember that it's always been that way ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, just a couple of verses and then I'll have my part finished up. First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Very familiar verses. First John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So uh, that closes the last point about 